It is the month of November. We've just passed Remembrance Sunday, 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. When we remember those who lost their lives in the Great War, lest we forget and repeat to ourselves, never again. It has been my incredible privilege and a very humbling experience to have helped the war wounded and injured in a first world treatment center for over a decade. Those injuries were caused by an untrained enemy with limited or little resources. And even with the best protection available for the casualties, you could see that the human body is just not designed to go through what can accurately be described as several car crashes worth of trauma in one go. And the resources needed to address them are exponentially higher. You see, surgery for the war wounded is not a revolving door. You don't push a casualty through, then a puff of smoke, some glitter, razzmatazz, and voila. A happy, healed, walking, running, able-bodied person appears on the other side. In reality, there is the immediate surgery to save life, limbs, identify further injuries, Find a surgeon who can deal with those injuries. Bones, bowels, chest, head, face, burns to the skin. Each of these needs a surgeon. Anesthetist, theatre time, consumables, preferably electricity too. You either operate one area at a time, in which case it would take you too long. Patient would bleed more, get hypothermic, acidotic and deteriorate. Or you do it all together, in which case you need to find enough surgeons. And in both cases, given the number of injuries, blood products are usually needed. A lab that stores it, equipment to cross-match it, personnel to run it. Dressings are needed too. A storage facility for the dressings. A way to get them to theatres and wards. A way to keep track of their usage to rationalize use, or they may run out. And of course, it's the intensive care. A functioning intensive care unit is always an essential, especially when these patients have been operated for enough length of time, even with the best will in the world. Your surgery gives the patient a second hit, meaning that they get a surge response and may need organ support, for which you need more personnel, machines, and I'm pretty sure electricity too. Given the nature of these injuries, it is near impossible to have your patient cleaned in one go for reconstruction. So every case needs further visits to operating theater. Only once the wounds are adequately cleaned, can you start reconstruction. Bony alignment, congruency of joints, intact muscle tendon units, or plan for a tendon transfer, intact motor nerves, and a good skin cover. And this is just a list of injuries. Someone needs to keep track of these injuries, who reviews these patients, someone who has to make clinical decisions for them, prioritize the patients as to who goes to theater, when, and what is the surgical goal for that trip. And all that time they spend making these decisions on complex patients. They're not operating in theater, mind you. 
And then there is rehab. Assuming no infections or malunions, open low limb fractures take at least one year, probably two, of intensive physiotherapy. So you tell me the name of a first world hospital, no matter how big a name, and I would tell you that less than 10, yes, one zero, 10, polytrauma patients presenting in quick succession will bring its surgical services to their knees. The fact that your nearest university hospital has 20, 30, 40 or more operating theatres means nothing. Because you won't have enough orthopedic surgeons, general surgeons, plastic or limb reconstructive surgeons to be in those theatres all at once for every surgery of every patient without shutting down everything else. Heck, you won't have enough porters to bring the patients to theatres. If it is an ITU patient, they'll likely have a doctor and a nurse with the patient. Can your ITU spare that many personnel first thing in the morning or any time of the day? Also, each of these ITU patients will need a preoperative checklist of sorts completed. Sounds simple enough, doesn't it? 20 to 30 minutes of checking the lines, the tubes, the ventilator settings, possibly blood results, cross-match, topping up the syringe drivers to make sure they keep running during surgery? Can your ITU spare that much time every 48 hours for I don't know how many patients? So when you hear about a complete opposite where a state level actor with probably the latest inoffensive technology against a tiny patch of land, probably half the area of New York City, and with a population density similar to that of Tokyo, blocked on all sides for 15 years. You know that there are likely shortages of theater equipment, consumables, probably unserviced ventilation systems, and more. You know deep inside that it's not going to go well. What I can tell you is that the injuries sustained from modern weapons used against a non-state actor with no armor, shielding, or bunkers must be horrendous. That the injuries would be significant, treatment pragmatic, and outcome will have high rates of death and disability. All of which is a huge problem for the medical staff working there. Assuming there are enough medical staff who have not been injured themselves. Sure, in this conflict, people have picked their favorite already. In the comfort of our homes, and I will let you go on about who poked whom first and who deserves what. But instead, I want to focus on something else. There's a much bigger crocodile lurking under the surface. That of targeting hospitals and medical infrastructure, for whatever reason. The international law, morality, your favorite theology, belief system, tarot cards, whatever, they protect the medical personnel and the premises tending to the injured. That is where Red Cross started. That is how Florence Nightingale worked. That is the protection offered to field hospitals in active theaters of war. That is how we came to the guinea pig club and the beginnings of modern plastic surgery. Because even in such difficult circumstances, as a single species, 
our humanity comes first. Or so we thought. Because this premise, unfortunately, is no longer valid. We have seen several hospitals, medical storage facilities destroyed, and medical personnel targeted, and prominent names and countries whom you can say have a seat at the table, have either applauded it or given it mute approval. As of today, any one party can argue that its opponent is using their medical facilities as a cover for active combat and decimate it at will. No need for evidence, journalists, or even UN inspectors, whatever good they did. Just place a few Facebook ads, buy a few YouTube commercial slots, and off you go. Pick your most hated enemy and your favorite protagonist and picture a rerun of this same scenario. And unfortunately, in this dystopia, poof, go the field hospitals, the Red Cross, and Florence Nightingale. And those are internationally agreed symbols of our humanity, of our ability to care for the injured, maimed, and disabled, no matter where the politics takes us, because our humanity overrides it all. Do also think about the charities and organizations that are working on a smaller scale. Doctors, nurses, and other staff who go and work in conflict areas there is no protection left for them. Forget state actors. Can local criminal gangs now move and level that facility, that hospital, and its personnel just because it treated their rivals? Would you like that happening in a conflict zone? Would you like that happening in your own city, in your neighborhood? Where does its moral and ethical basis lie? if a country is allowed to destroy medical facilities, but a criminal gang is not. Internet legend says that the first evidence of human civilization was the archeological evidence of splinting a femur fracture. That is, a fellow human who could not run away from predators was helped by another fellow human. And that is where civilization started in earnest. Yet here we are tens of thousands of years of advanced civilization. In November 2023, 109 years after the end of the Great War, where we vowed never to let hatred get the better of us. In an era where we are teaching artificial intelligence how to be more human, it is here that we have lost what we considered the first seed of civilization our humanity. And I would like to observe a minute of silence for all the monstrous, cold-blooded, slimy reptiles who, for whatever material gain, lack of moral fiber, or for a cringeworthy desire for clinging to power, have caused, aided, abetted, or stayed silent on this death of humanity lest we forget.
Starting the November 2023, ASJ is Al-Hashimi's systematic review of efficacy of TXA, or tranexamic acid, in decreasing hematomas in facelift surgery. After sifting through, they looked at one RCT, one retrospective, and one prospective cohort studies. It is a good review of different ways TXA has been used, for example, either with epinephrine, lidocaine, or without. It came as a surprise that there is conflicting evidence for its efficacy. So, as we discussed last month, maybe it is the hemostatic net to the rescue, assuming you're happy with the slightly longer time taken with it. Bowie, Lee, and Kim from Atlanta described their experience of using spacer graft in lower left surgery for patients with exophthalmos. They had 15 patients over an eight-year period. They used either a transconjunctival or subciliary incision to place a suitable spacer in subconjunctival space. This spacer was either a porcine ADM or ear cartilage. Either canthopexy or canthoplasty was done as clinically indicated. The idea is to decrease risk of retraction of the lower lid postoperatively. The authors say that it is the first time high-risk patients have had a spacer graft placed in anticipation to prevent lower lid retraction after lower bluff surgery. At a mean follow-up of nine months, only two patients out of 15 developed lower lid retraction. Kolesinski and Kolenda from Poland have written about the incidence of BIA a ALCL. In 1,500 patients, they operated over a 10-year period. 96% were primary and 4% were secondary implantations, with about a 60-40 split of BAs and augmentation vaccines, 50-50 of round and anatomical. The senior author is Fabio Centinelli, so you know what's coming. A discussion about prophylactic implant exchange Data is quoted supporting that thesis. Uh, what it doesn't address is, is the results from implant registries. For example, UK implant registry has been recording for the last four years and its BIA ALCL numbers are much less than this paper. So I don't think this is the last of these discussions. Perenzino et al. discuss drainless abdominoplasty by comparing 194 patients with drains and 260 patients with progressive tension sutures, but no drains. 99% of drainless cases were done as day case, were more likely to have liposuction as well. The overall complications were about half in the no drain cohort, and the rate of seroma was virtually zero. The progressive tension sutures were done with number one bicryl, about 10 to 15 of these. So a little bit of time taken for a good result. Hayano et al. have created a photonumeric scale to assess the perioral region, specifically to assess the severity of marionette lines and perioral lines. Because perioral lines are almost exclusively seen in women, so only women's photographs were used to assess that. And it's a five-point scale, going from no static perioral lines to very severe and similarly for marionette lines. There have been assessment scales published by Cohen et al. in 2014, which was a four-grade scale, and even before that by Carruthers et al. in 2012, who published four scales with five points each.
So whichever floats your boat. Von Fritschen talk about the implementation of German breast implant registry. It set up data access, processing of data, track and trace functionality, and data safety. If that is something you are planning to implement or have already implemented and want to compare it with your own, it's a good read. Boletta, McGoldrick, and Hall-Findley describe before and after measurements of patients undergoing various aesthetic breast surgeries. If you've listened to Hall-Findley speaking, she is very passionate about explaining that certain operations affect the breast measurements in a consistent way. So you can plan for a more predictable result. Some of these measurements are made in the vertical orientation, like clavicle to upper pole distance, sternal notch to IMF. Some are oblique or follow tissue curves, for example, sternal notch to nipple, upper breast border to nipple, and nipple to IMF. And one measurement is horizontal, which is the nipple to midline distance. The results and the rationale are very well described. But I could not help but thinking that these outcomes or changes in measurements are technique dependent. For example, she used Ribeiro's auto-augmentation technique for mastopexies and notes that the upper breast border moves superiorly by about a centimeter. I think that can only happen if the length of the flap used for auto-augmentation is longer than the height of the breast foot plate. That is, the nipple IMF distance needs to be long enough to be able to get a pedicle width out of it as well as a length for auto-augmentation which reaches and goes past the upper pole. But nonetheless, a very engaging paper. I would be very interesting to see similar data for the same operations but perform using different techniques. Palacios and Bestidas discuss AI language systems in plastic surgery and envisage its role in copywriting, chatbots, and research while addressing some real risks. It's a much better paper than many of the recent ChatGPT this and ChatGPT that publications. Yuan et al. did an anthropomorphic study to evaluate the anatomy of Asian forehead. You'd think they'd meant to say East Asian, but the paper is from Beijing, China, and frankly, China comes as far west as Central Asia, so make your own mind. But leaving these semantics aside, they have had 241 volunteers in this study who had not had any toxin or filler in their face, divided their forehead into 12 areas in the right and 12 areas on the left, used an ultrasound probe, to assess the anatomy in repos with the subject supine and also to clinical photographs with subject doing maximal muscle contraction. They categorized 10 types of frontalis muscles and five types of frontal lines. Again, I see there is a role of ultrasound in there, but if you are less inclined to that, the authors have provided a visual representation of the scale. Coming to PRS, we start off with Hassan et al., a publication from MD Anderson Center. Patients who had breast reconstruction tissue expander 
over a period of two years were looked at. 694 reconstructions, 96% were immediate rest reconstructions, and around three quarters had an ADM. They split their data 80-20 into training and testing categories and used nine different machine learning algorithms. Trained the algorithm on the training set, and once down, checked the accuracy of its predictions on the testing set. They found that the so-called GLM, or Generalized Linear Model, achieved the best prediction value. And the six most important predictors of explantation were post-op radiotherapy, BMI, age, implant location, type of ADM, and post-operative chemo. There is a very good description of these machine learning models if you want to learn more or want to tweak them. NYU Langone system has another paper this month about what they describe as the underused supromedial pedicle for breast reduction. Now I can see some colleagues squinting their eyes about how is supromedial pedicle underused. So remember last month's paper from the same team where the average weight of breast tissue removed was in the five to 600 gram range. So not surprising that supromedial is a less used technique for this cohort of patients. Now, when it comes to machine learning, Liu et al. from Shanghai have upped the game. Identification of prospective drugs for capsular contracture based on text mining and machine learning. First part, text mining of PubMed articles for names of genes associated with a certain topic. So there is a database developed from the Manchester University that links this information for many species. Obviously, we are interested in humans only, so that's the first thing they took. The next step was to fine-tune that information received by specifically looking for genes which occur together, again, from, an from a different online database. Then. This refined set of genes was given to two further databases. One that looks for proteins associated with those genes and created a network of proteins which may interact with the first one as well. And second database which maps genes to potential drug candidates. So far, this has been the text mining and refining part. Then was the machine learning part. In December 2020, in the Bioinformatics Journal was published an article about a GitHub library called Deep Purpose, which predicts drug-to-target interaction. It contains about 50 different neural networks that have been fine-tuned to do this prediction modeling. Again, there are details of the machine learning model features and how it is implemented if you'd want to have a deeper dive. So what happened next? A total 16 targeted genes were uncovered, of which TNF, TGF-beta-1, MMP1 and 2 are household names. But there are a few others. And of the drugs, quite a few have been listed. What caught my eye specifically was medroxyprogesterone depot, which makes me wonder if progestins may be an answer. So if you are out there writing a paper, 
about whether progestins have a protective effect on capsular contracture. Now is your time. Hedek et al. from UT Southwestern did a process analysis of their DF flaps in order to make it better. They divided the operation into 23 steps and divided their study period into eight separate time periods of several months each. And then went about trying to optimize each of those steps and looked at the data for each of these time periods. At the end, most of their patients were delayed immediate breast reconstructions. When they started out, they had an average operating time of 8 hours 31 minutes, a flap complication rate of 28.9% and a total complication rate of 52.6%. When they finished, they had an average operative time of 4 hours 18 minutes, a flap complication rate of around 9% and a total complication rate of 20%. They literally halved everything and actually had a period of even better figures. What a fantastic effort. First to think of it, then implement it consistently for several years, and then going out on a limb with, look, this is where we started, these were the numbers, but we worked hard at it, and this is where we proudly stand today. Amazing. Moving on, Maguire, Glixman, McCarthy, and Spiegel. Myth versus reality in breast implants. Start with FTA's moratorium. Talk about autoimmune syndrome, ALCL, as well as breast implant illness. A very good read with well-presented thoughts and evidence-backed. I won't spoil it for you. Go and read it. Component dorsal reshaping, featuring the four R's of Rod Rorick, Release, resect, rasp, and restore. Have a read for the details, please. In the pediatric section is a paper by Zhang et al. that caught my eye about prognostic factors for speech outcomes after operated submucous clefts. So 131 patients, of which 92 had a furlough and 39 had a posterior pharyngeal fluff. About 50-50 split of male to female looks like they found that 9.5 years of age turned out to be their cutoff and that treatment before was better than treatment after this cutoff age. And furlough appeared to be better for overt submucous clefts and that if you are in a situation where the child is over 9.5 uh, years of age, then you're better off doing a posterior pharyngeal flap. And for that, authors use the Hogan technique which they have described previously already. Lee et al. talk about updates in lower limb reconstruction after trauma. They discuss the timing of reconstruction, technical considerations about inflow and outflow, flap choice and post-op considerations. Some of the comments I liked was about extending the early reconstruction period to about 10 days, that Technical reconstructions like quality of flow, proximity of venous outflow, etc., are more important than pedantically going out of the zone of trauma. Also, that vascular injury, even if it doesn't threaten the limb viability, may still have reconstructive implications. That two veins for outflow 
should be preferable given that venous outflow is the usual cause for a flap problem in the lower limb and that a venous size mismatch of more than one millimeter increased the risk of flap failure. And with those insights, I will finish today's podcast. Keep stitching and take pride in your humanity.